Welcome to the Concordia Publishing House podcast, where we consider everything in the light of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm your host, Elizabeth Pittman. Have you ever heard someone say, I like Jesus, but I really don't know about the church? If you've heard that, how did you react? Our guest today is author Krista Petzold. Krista is the author of the brand new book, Gathered by Christ, The Overlooked Gift of the Church. In her new book, and through our conversation today, Krista will help you see the church through the eyes of Christ, her creator, redeemer, and sustainer. But before we start our conversation with Krista, I'd like to thank our friends, as always, at the LCMS Foundation for their support of the CPH podcast. Imagine a future where your God-given gifts continue to benefit your family and faith after you're called home to heaven. The LCMS Foundation can help you create a gift plan so that your assets, things like your retirement accounts, home or land, will leave a lasting impact on the people you love and on the ministries you care about the most. Visit lcmsfoundation.org to learn more about creating your gift plan. Now on to our conversation with Krista Petzold. Krista, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So the last time we saw you here on the podcast, uh, you were with your husband and we were talking about your first book, Male and Female. How does it feel to have not one book, but now two books under your belt? Um, it's really, it's really great. I really, I just discovered that I really love writing and, um, had a lot of, you know, fun working on the first one. Um, and before I was done with that one, I had ideas in my head for this book. Um, and now the ideas just keep coming. So it's always good to have ideas, especially when you like to write. And so it's, mm-hmm. I know the readers appreciate that. So your new book is Gathered by Christ, The Overlooked Gift of Church, and it's fascinating in the pages of this book because you take us into church history, which is is really a kind of a cool thing. What are the benefits of studying the history of those who came before us in the faith? Yeah, well, I feel like there there's so many benefits, but um, I think just, you know, realizing that like if the church is a family, then those who have come before us, even if that's, you know, 2000 years ago throughout the last, you know, uh, millennia of church history, like those are all part, those people are all part of our church family and getting to know them helps us know ourselves better. Um, The same way that knowing about like your great grandparents helps you understand like why your family is the way it is and things like that. Um, So, but I think the, one of the biggest benefits of studying church history is that it's just encouraging. Um, being the church is hard. Um, we are very aware of all the things that are hard about being the church <clears throat> in our own setting. Like we know what the culture is doing that makes it hard to be the church. We know maybe what the sins are in our own congregations that make being the church hard. Um, when we study church history, we see that we aren't the only Christians who have lived through difficult times um, and sometimes have been much more difficult than what we're experiencing. Uh, and so I think I draw a lot of encouragement, you know, when something comes up and, you know, we're having a conversation about something happening and I can say, you know, this is this happened to so-and-so back in 400 A.D. And uh, here we all still are, you know, 1,600 years later, and and things are still on track, and Jesus is still coming back, and it's going to be okay. So it's very sort of reassuring, I think. Um, 
It can also help us to, like, like I said, understand ourselves more clearly as the church. Um, we can see like our own bias more clearly. Um, when we look at theological issues, when we read the Bible, we read it through our own cultural lens. And when we read books that are written, you know, in different settings and in different times, it helps us detect our own lens. Like, oh, I'm bringing this set of assumptions to this text because I live in the 21st century in the United States. And somebody else who read the text a thousand years ago didn't have that set of assumptions and they read it differently. And that's really interesting. So it can help us kind of like notice when we are bringing assumptions with us. Um, and that helps us protect against error, right? So the church has dealt with many errors throughout the ages. And when we study church history, then we become aware of those theological things and what the stakes are and why those, those details of the faith matter. And it can help us not make the same mistakes that the church has already addressed. Um, but I think finally, like the church, church history is the story of Jesus at work in our world. Um, so Jesus told his disciples before he ascended that I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so the story of what happened next is the story of Jesus at work in our world for the past 2000 years, which, you know, it's who wouldn't want to know that story, right? No, it's the greatest story and it's one worth knowing and studying the history is a great way to do that because there is a lot to learn and, and to apply for us today. You remind us that the church is created by God and not by man. How can remembering that inform the way we view and participate in our own con congregations today? Yeah, I think it helps us to place our hope and our confidence in the right things. So we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that um, the man-made elements of the church are the things that we need, you know. Uh, or um, are the most important things. So knowing that the church is something God creates and God sustains helps us to recognize that maybe the church isn't just who the pastor is or just who the staff is or just, you know, what building we're in. Um, but the church is something bigger than that. Um, Jesus is the leader of the church, not, not us or not like the individuals um, leading in any specific church body. Um, it can help us remember like that when we attend church, when we show up at a church that um, we aren't there to put something on for Jesus, but Jesus is there bringing something to us, which is forgiveness, you know, and the word of God. Um, so it helps us to not see church as like, I guess, a production, right? Like it's not our production for God. Um, it's not our production for each other. Um, it's not something that we we're not like, it helps us not have a consumeristic um, sort of mentality, but to sort of humbly receive what Jesus gives to us at church. Um, yeah. And so, and also like, it helps us when we're thinking about like, what should the church look like? Um, you know, what should the, you know, the music be like, or like how the church worship times and things like that. Like everybody has their preferences, um, but it helps us to, Think not maybe about like what I prefer, but what is healthy for the body of Christ? What does God prefer? You know, so it helps us to go back to scripture for like um, the source of how we do things in the church and to orient, orient the church around like God's design for the church and not our own desires. 
Um, and in that, of course, we can pray that God would align our desires with his design, right? So we often hear the church refite, re, referred to as the bride, the bride of Christ. Talk to us about that analogy. Yeah, so um, just in preparation for this, I Googled like bride of Christ scripture, and there are so many verses that have this bridal language in it, talking about God and his people, um, and they're throughout the whole Bible. So there's Old Testament passages, um, like for example, Isaiah 62, 5, uh, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Um, and then there are New Testament passages, there are Jesus's parables about like the virgins preparing for the bridegroom. Um, you know, he refers to himself that way when he tells, um, you know, the the disciples and, and the, the Pharisees, whoever he's talking to in that. He, there's this moment where Jesus is like, he says, like, you don't fast when the bridegroom is with you, but you fast when he has gone. And so, like, Jesus refers to himself that way. Um, there's um, Ephesians 5, where... Um, Paul explains that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And there's this really crystal clear connection between like Jesus being the husband and the church being the wife or the bride. And um, Jesus sanctifies the church and presents the church to himself. So Jesus both receives the church as the bridegroom, but also is the one making her holy and doing the presenting. So like Jesus is doing the whole thing from all sides, right? Um, and then in Revelation, there are passages that talk, uh, so like Revelations, Revelation 12, 2 says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And, uh, you know, so the second coming is often referred to as the marriage feast of the lamb. So there's lots of that language in Revelation too. Um, so yeah, that, that, that really beautiful language of the church as the bride of Christ is, is throughout scripture. We're all familiar in our local congregations and throughout of, with the pastor, our local pastor, other pastors that we know. Tell us about the role that the pastor fills in the life of the church. Yeah, so the pastor... Then if so, the church is the bride of Christ. The pastor is a man that is called from among the faithful um, to publicly represent Christ to his bride, the church. So this means that the pastor is responsible for the public proclamation of the forgiveness of sins and for the public preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. Um, so those are kind of the big key things. Um, and kind of on a side note, but I think it helps us understand like the role of pastor. Um, there's really precise qualifications in scripture for what uh, would qualify a man to be a pastor. And that language of the church being the bride of Christ is part of, in a nutshell, why the church does not ordain women, right? Because Christ's relationship with the church is imaged for us in the marriage reality so the pastor representing Christ's headship, like, is a man. We can see that image of, you know, Christ and his bride in that. Um, and so 
that headship and helpership that we see in marriage, also we see it in the pastoral office and the way the pastor cares for the congregation. Yeah, it's pastors have a big job. They have a lot of stress and a lot of joy in, in their vocations. What are some of the ways that we in the congregation can honor the pastor, honor the office of the pastor and support our pastors? Yeah, um, so it is, I, I, you know, um, as a pastor's wife, I guess, being in ministry, there are many challenges, but there are so many blessings too. Um, I think that, you know, just treating your pastor with respect and care, you know, assuming good things about his intentions, um, and then realizing that, you know, he isn't perfect and he can't do everything is a good place to start. So pastors are just regular people, um, which means they're going to make mistakes. They will sometimes need your forgiveness. And, um, you know, so they, they have passion for what they're doing, but it's also, it is a heavy weight. Um, pastors witness so much in just like human suffering. They walk alongside people who are going through very difficult times. And then sometimes they turn around from those moments and they go back to work. And then maybe there are some people there who are very upset about something that maybe in the context of those life and death moments that the pastor experiences with his flock are, seem very trivial. And that can be very difficult. Um, it, it can just be, it's just, a, it can be quite the load, you know, and Satan also has it out for pastors and wants to attack them and to make them feel um, alone and inadequate and all those things. So I think, you know, pray for your pastor, encourage your pastor in whatever way you can, you know, cards or notes or offers of service. Um, I think it helps pastors when you tell them things. So, um, I'm always just a big fan of people just if they have something that they need to, you know, just say what you say what you need to say so that that this truth has been told and everyone's aware. So like if you want your pastor to visit you, just tell him that you want him to visit you. Or if you are worried about something that's going on at church, whether it's like a Bible study or a church practice or whatever, um, just tell your pastor that you're worried about it and then like have a conversation because Sometimes it can be really encouraging. Sometimes a conversation you think might be like scary to a pastor is actually really encouraging to him. You don't really, you don't always know, you know, and so just open communication and, um, you know, the pastor, most pastors just really love talking to people one-on-one. -on -one. Like that might be why they went into ministry. So, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, just for, and I guess um, when you think about supporting like ministry families, um, like the whole family, I think a lot of it is just logistics. Like just remembering that like most pastors' families live away from their extended family. And so um, all of those things that, you know, you maybe do with your parents or siblings or children, like they're on their own for those things. And, um, so, you know, maybe invite them over 
uh, maybe especially on holidays like Christmas and Easter. <laughs> uh, I know that might sound really awkward to invite your pastor over for like Christmas or Easter, but um, you can do it. And it's very likely that, you know, they have a very busy week and then they have nothing on the schedule in terms of just celebration and relaxation because they're far away from family. So, um, yeah. It can be very, it can be very challenging as the family of a pastor. You've lived, you've lived this as a pastor's wife, I'm a pastor's kid. And the analogy of kind of living in the fishbowl mm -hmm. is, is really accurate because as the family of a pastor, you feel a lot of the burden of things that are happening, but you often can't do anything about it. Yeah. And, you know, heaven forbid there are situations where people are saying less than kind things about the pastor and you're, you're sitting there as the family and it just, you know, it, it can make you very tense. Yeah. Um, and it can, it can be tough to be the that in that role of the family member um, in the congregation. What advice and encouragement do you have for the family members of pastors, but also a little bit on the encouragement side for members in the church of yeah. um, encouraging them. Can, you started down this path a little bit, but I think just to yeah. draw a counterpoint on it. I think, I think for speaking for pastors' wives, I think when you can catch a glimpse of the beauty that is the church and really hold on to that in the moments when the beauty is not what is most prominently on display, I think that is really important. Like it, it really helps me to have a really well um, drawn big picture understanding of what's happening. Like to know, like the church is beautiful. It is the bride of Christ. And that means that we bear all things with one another out of love for him. We can love each other that way. And, you know, you get a lot of opportunities to practice this. Um, you know, if, you often have to be very patient and bear with people who, you know, probably just have not even realized the way that their words are are impacting the pastor's family. Um, and, and I definitely have resonated with the feeling of like, you know, sometimes you feel a little trapped, like, well, anybody else can just not come to this or could just go to a different church or um, could choose to fill in the blank, but I don't have those choices. Um, and I think that on one hand, that's really difficult, but I think it's also a really beautiful opportunity for us to rely on Christ and learn to like trust him <laughs> instead of trusting, you know, the, the situations. Um, and that has been really hard, but it's also, it, it's also been a blessing to practice loving the church. Um, through some of those things. Um, but I would also say like, make sure to pay close attention to all the ways the church is a huge blessing and gift to your family as well, because it can be hard, but it's, it, it on the other side is it's beautiful. You know, um, people who like, um, at one stage of my life, I was fostering a baby and then I had a baby and I had four kids four and under. And my church made my life happen for me. Like I could not do it. And my the congregation we were at at the time, like there were people cooking me meals three times a week for over six weeks. And there were um, members of the congregation who came over 
Like one woman came over every Monday and played with my children for like four hours so that I could do laundry and chores and whatever, you know, or just not be touched for five minutes. Um, so like those things are really, really beautiful. And like, you know, making sure to notice those things and like recognize them as this is a way that the church is a blessing to my family that may not have existed if I we weren't in ministry. Um, will help with the times when you're like, this is a cross that I wouldn't necessarily have to bear if we weren't in ministry. Like they, there are both, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Why do the practices in our local congregation matter so much? Yeah. So there's this phrase that, um, this Latin saying that I mentioned in my book and hopefully I'm saying it right. Lex orandi, lex credendi, which translates roughly to the law of what is prayed is the law of what is believed, or you could kind of say it, how we pray or worship either is or becomes what we end up believing. So our practices matter because they form our thinking and our beliefs, right? Um, so for example, if you go to church every Sunday, um, the act of going to church every Sunday reinforces in you the belief that you should go to church every Sunday, right? Like you, be, you, you think that now because you do it and you maybe always have, or, and what that on a deeper level, that's telling you that God is the first thing in the week and that your life is oriented around God's presence with his people. And so something as simple as, saying when there's a church service, my family goes to church can become something much deeper, which is a belief that our life revolves around being the people of God. Um, and then all of the things that we do at church, you know, like um, the liturgy, the prayers, the hymnody and the music, like all of those things teach us something like by the act of doing them about God. And so we want to um, be thoughtful and, and even like what kind of events we have at our church, what we offer for the kids, what we offer for Bible study, all of those decisions that we make about how to, how to do church, um, create beliefs in us and reinforce beliefs in us about what it means to be the church. Um, so like if you have a church that doesn't have Bible study on Sunday morning, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that that's like a terrible thing, but then one of the, you know, if the blessing of adding in a Bible study on Sunday morning is that just by having it there, everyone in the church who's there on Sunday morning, even if they don't attend the Bible study, understands that part of what it means to be a Christian is to study the Bible because it's been sort of prioritized and we, we just are living that out. So in, in Gathered by Christ, you explain that the, you explain why the church is both necessary and a blessing in the lives of Christians. Do you have any thoughts about how we can kindly and lovingly bring up the necessity of church with people in our lives that have fallen away from attending church? I know it can be a really sensitive topic. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I guess I would say, first of all, if there's somebody that you would like to see in church, you could just invite them to church. Um, so that sounds, you know, I don't mean that to sound flippant, but, you know, it can't hurt um, to just issue the invitation. And, you know, the worst thing that can happen is they can say no. Um, but I think I think that that that's not always as hard to do as we think it's going to be. But we're like running, rehearsing it in our mind beforehand. And 
Um, but also I think we can just model it. Like we can live by example. So not only going to church ourselves as regularly as we can, but also being willing to talk about why we go to church and not being shy about the fact that we go to church. Um, you know, be willing to turn down Sunday morning social invitations. I know that that can be awkward, but, you know, even just saying, oh, I would love to do that, but my family goes to church at that time. Would you like to come with us? And then we could do it after or, you know, something like that. And then, you know, it can be awkward. I'm sure that that can be really awkward. And sometimes we have family situations where things are sensitive and difficult. Um, and some of us are more extroverted and better at this than others. Um, but I think just knowing for ourselves why we choose to go to church regularly, what the point is, why, why this is matters and what we receive in church, and then being willing to talk about that, to just share that conversationally with the people in our lives is a big part of it. And that's honestly one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I think a lot of us go to church regularly, but we maybe can't articulate why in a really um, clear and powerful way. And so then when we have people in our lives who maybe don't value regular church attendance, we don't really know what to say other than, oh, well, I, I hope you come, you know, this, hopefully this book can equip us to say, to be able to talk about why we, what we get at church, what the gifts are that Jesus has for us there. You know, so speaking of church attendance, we're seeing studies come out more and more frequently now. A recent one um, showed that most Protestant pastors and churchgoers are now defining regular church attendance as twice a month. Um, and this is down from generation two, three ago, where it was it was higher than that. Mm -hmm. How do you react to that when you see see it becoming less and less is considered regular? Yeah, well, so it was an interesting study. So when I looked at the study, um, it did say like pastors, you know, consider regular attendance to be twice a month. And immediately I thought, this is not like prescriptive, like no pastor is saying, I really hope everybody comes twice a month, you know, um, but rather what that's demonstrating is that there is that decline in attendance. Um, and that means that, you know, and I noticed in that same article, I think um, the churchgoers who were not pastors, 59% of them said that regular attendance is weekly. And then if you add in the group that said three times a month means regular attendance, then you're at like 71%. So even though we see low attendance numbers, we still have like 71% of churchgoers think that twice a month is not really regular. Like we're, we're aiming for more than that, which is good. Um, but I think when pastors are asked that question, how often is regular? They're thinking about it from a shepherd's perspective. They're asking the question, who are my sheep? Who are the people who I'm taking care of spiritually? And they're noticing that the most regular attending members, the people who they know and they like know their kids' names and that they can be an active, that are active in the church are just not coming as often. Um, and they're, they're kind of looking at this through the lens of like pastoral care too. So, I mean, like one thing that's tricky is that churches often are bigger than they look like on the surface now. 
Um, so just for example, if you have a church where there's 100 people in attendance every week, but most of them are only coming twice a month, that's actually closer to a congregation of 200. Um, and so it may look like a small church if you just show up on Sunday, but the pastor is maybe taking care of more people than it looks like he is. And so I think that that's why pastors are responding that way to the survey. Um, but I think that you like that, that, that um, I think that we should really sort of push back against the culture on this and try to, you know, do a little better. And that that's going to be hard. It's going to mean sports events that our kids can't participate in and invitations we have to say no to and getting out of bed on mornings when there's nobody making us. Um, but earlier we were talking about how to support pastors in their and their families and ministry. And I do have to say that um, the biggest, the single biggest way that you can support and encourage your pastor and his ministry is just by showing up, you know, just come to church and be there, go to Bible study. Nothing else that you do will mean as much to your pastor as you doing those two things. Um, yeah. So I think that, that that's what they would say, um, even though like that number is sliding down, that it's really encouraging when people prioritize it especially when that's not as common. Well, and there's benefits to both the person attending, but also to the community around. I mean, when you go to church, mm -hmm. you receive, but you're also a blessing to the people that you are, are worshiping with. Yes. And so yeah. it's, it's good to be there with one another. And if you recognize that someone that you ordinarily would see in the pews near you has been missing, you know, get curious about that and, and you know, reach out and see how they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. So like when, and that's true, like when you come to church, you're able then to be the body of Christ for each other and to, mm -hmm. to notice how other people are doing and to be there for them. So in a nutshell, how does Jesus see the church? Um, so Ephesians 5 is this passage that is known for speaking about husbands and wives, but it also gives us this really vivid picture of how Christ views the church. So I'm just going to read a couple of these verses. Um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And so I like that picture of Jesus loves the church as his own body, right? Jesus gave up his body for the church in the cross, right? And Jesus then, his righteousness, he gives to the church. And so when Jesus looks at the church, he sees us as in splendor, without blemish, holy, with perfectly righteous. So as we start to wrap up, and for our listeners, there's so much more in the book, Gathered by Christ, The Overlooked Gift of Church. Um, I encourage you to take a look at that. We'll link to it in the show notes. But as we start to, to wind down here, what is your favorite part of church and why? Um, so I think initially I thought this question was going to be a really hard question, but I think it might be an easy question, actually. So um, for me, church is grounding. Um, 
it like it's very it roots me it gives me this under underlying sense of reality so um i love the fact that it's the same as it was when i was a kid when i was a teenager at college no matter where i live i can go to church and it's it's church so I love all of that. I love all the elements of church that give me that really grounded, rooted sense of safety and security and assurance. Um, so for me, that's the liturgy. I love the theology that's packed into the hymns. Um, I find that even on weeks when it's really difficult for me to get myself to church logistically, um, just with you know wrangling children or whatnot, or maybe not feeling as well, um, I've never in my life gotten home from church and thought, well, I really wish I hadn't gone. Um, that's never happened. So I think that one of my favorite things about being in ministry, about being a pastor's wife, is that my life revolves around the church and I can't get away. And on, on one hand, that's like, that might sound like a bad thing, but um, it's a really, it's very intensely reassuring and grounding as well. Um and, and so I guess, but I guess my favorite part of church is Jesus. <laughs> I know that's the Sunday school answer, but it is for a reason. So when I go to church every time I receive Jesus body and blood for me, and that's part of, that is what makes it that grounding rooted experience. It, it, it just tells me who I am reminds me that I am a baptized child of God and that this is my identity. And, and so it just, yeah, I, Jesus is there. So that's my favorite thing about church. Yeah, oh, that's a great answer. And you're right. The Sunday school answer is never wrong. <laughs> so Krista, thank you for joining us today. It's great to hear about the new book gathered by Christ, the overlooked gift of church. And like I said before, I think our listeners will really enjoy reading this. I guarantee you will learn a lot. So visit the notes, and we'll have a link to where you can learn more about the book and pre-order at this point. Krista, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Listeners, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Concordia Publishing House podcast. I pray that this time was valuable to your walk with Christ. We'd love to connect with listeners on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Concordia Pub. Visit cph.org for more resources to grow deeper in the gospel.